What's up, good people in podcast land? Welcome to Convene. I'm your host, Chris Penrose. Convene is a conversation series with a narrative arc. Since 2017, we have brought the creative community in Toronto together to dive into topics ranging from creative direction and visual storytelling to contracts, pricing your work, and space to create. This podcast is dedicated to sharing the audio from those conversations. Just a heads up, when people get passionate about sharing knowledge, sometimes they throw some explicit language in there. So there's some of that in this episode. Enjoy. Convene, what's your work worth? Dealt with questions we all face around the value of our work. Whether you're running a team, creating a product, or providing your talent, the question of the worth of your work is one we all find difficult. How much do you charge for what you offer, what you do, and what you make? How do you know when unpaid or underpaid work is actually an opportunity or when it is just being taken advantage of? To answer these questions, this conversation featured Rolly Pemberton, aka Cadence Weapon, producer and manager Eva Golubovich, and Raul Madin and Eric Richards of Will Studios. Hi, everyone. I'm going to introduce Eric Richards. Uh, he's a Toronto-based stylist and co-founder of Will Studios. Eric has previously spent time as a menswear buyer and is a graduate of the George Brown Fashion Business Program. Eric has styled for clients such as Nike, Canon, and Moose Knuckles and is also a published model. <laughs> okay, so Toronto-based designer Raul Madden is a freelance creative consultant and small business writer business advisor and is a co-founder of Will Studios. Raul's background includes, includes owning and operating MetroMath Learning Centers, as well as spending time as a member of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers um, in the CFL. Uh, shared a shared appreciation for clean lines, contemporary design, and unique styling brought me and Raul together and has become the foundation for Will Studios. Thank you. Cadence Weapon, a.k.a. Roland Rowley Pemberton, is an Edmonton-born, Toronto-based rapper and producer. His albums, Breaking Kayfabe and Hope in Dirt City, were both shortlisted for the Polaris Music Prize. Pemberton served as Poet Laureate of Edmonton from 2009 to 2011, making him the literary ambassador of his hometown. His new self-titled album came out this January. <laughs> Eva is a freelance producer and director with experience in music videos, web series, short films, and branded content. She recently stepped down as head of production at Mad Rock Entertainment, which focuses largely on music videos. Eva also manages creative director, photographer, and stylist, Sean Brown. Thank you. If we can just welcome our panel. We're welcome. That was definitely the radio. You got the radio intro. <laughs> yeah, one, one of the things I do. Um, and, and on that note, um, there are a lot of things that each of you do. I'm just wondering from far into the panel right through, just so that everyone has some context, what do you do professionally? What do you make professionally? If you can just point form, kind of list that so we know what we're talking about. Yeah, so as part of Will Studios, we design clothes and obviously all the content surrounding that. Um, uh, you know, marketing, all the business side of it, photography, graphic design, um, styling. Yeah. yeah. So I'm primarily a rapper, but I also produce a lot of my music. I'm also a DJ, and I also manage myself. 
And um, I'm also a writer, and I'm you know I've written for different publications, including Pitchfork, and you know just all kinds of you know I've had my work published in the Globe and Mail and stuff, and in the Guardian. Um, I'm also a poet, and I was the poet laureate of Edmonton, which you mentioned before. And yeah, I'm kind of a slashy guy. I do all kinds of stuff. So uh, I'm in the film world. I mainly do production. Um, music videos, short form content, branded content, web series, that kind of stuff, uh, as well as directing and writing. I'm, I'm gonna add slashy to my LinkedIn. <laughs> Nobody else take that, please. <laughs> um, well, this conversation actually began from a phone call that you and I had, um, that I had with Eva. And so that's why you get the hard question first, which is, how do you determine what you charge for your work? Okay. so. Just to start somewhere, um, the industry standard for music videos, short form content branded, mostly online stuff, is that producers get 5% of the budget. Um, but, uh, and there's a massive but there, um, you have to understand also whether the amount that you're gonna get paid is worth the amount of work that you're gonna put in. So 5% works if the budget is $30,000 or more, but if it's a $10,000 video, you're probably not gonna wanna produce it for $500 unless um, there is, it just depends on who you're working with, for example, so things to consider. Are you working with a brand that's just not willing to pay, in which case you might wanna reconsider that? Um, or are you working with an artist who really just doesn't have the money? So in that case, how can you restructure what you're doing to get more out of it? So can you take on multiple roles? Like I've assistant directed and casted myself just so that I can get a little bit more out of the budget. Um, but a friend of mine recently actually told me to also follow the three uh, R's, which is revenue, relationship, and real. So you have to cover two of those in order for the job to be worth it. Um, what a lot of brands do will say, oh, we don't have a lot of money, but we have a lot of followers. Um, that's cool, but if you're going to do it, <laughs> it still has to be something that you're proud of doing so that you're not just, not that there's anything wrong with just like, you know, covering an event or doing something for them. But make sure that what what it is that you're, they're asking you to do is something that you can then leverage to get other jobs in the future. Because you're not guaranteed to have a relationship with that brand, um, despite what they might say. Um, so make sure that what they're asking you to do, if it's not for the money, um, is something you can show on your reel. It's something that's along the lines of your work. If there isn't a budget for it, uh, then just make sure that you're not over-promising or that um, it's something that you can't deliver. So there's another rule that I like to follow, and it's um, cheap, fast, um, and good. So they can only have two out of those. And so make sure they should know this, but you're going to have to remind them. So if they want it to be um, you know, cheap and good, they're going to need to give you the time to deliver, and you're going to need to give the time because you're going to be having to pull all the favors in your end. You're going to need to give the people you're pulling favors from the time to actually execute, especially if you're talking about like editing or post-production. So that's a very roundabout answer, but it's a lot of things to consider. Well, just to follow up on one of those things, I know we were talking about a story where, um, you know, I knew somebody who did some work as an artist, an illustrator for someone who said they were going to post it and then they did post it with no credit. Um, and just, you know, that's a small scale thing, but in terms of the brand where you're talking about, um, 
they're saying exposure, how important has in your experience it been to say, well, what's the contract or what, like, how do I know what, what you're actually promising? If I am going to work with you, like, is, is there clarity around how this is shared? Do I have ownership of it? How long do you have it? Um, you know, what's your, what are your thoughts on those elements of it? Yeah, that's a really good question. So getting everything down on paper is so important because somebody's saying like, oh, I have a hundred thousand followers. Cool. But are you actually going to tag me? And then those followers are actually going to see me. So make sure that whatever it is that you decide to do, you have it down on paper, whether it be email or like contract is best where it's signed to say, hey, this is exactly what I'm going to do, bullet points, and this is what you're going to do in return. And then they have to stand and do that. Because a lot of the times once a project is done, they'll just, you know, walk away. They won't necessarily disappear, but they're not going to go out of their way to help you build your brand because they need your product. That's what it is at the end of the day. Yeah, exactly. I think that's that's a very valuable point. And I think, you know, Rolly, I have a question for you to follow up on that because I think as a producer, that 5% is a helpful thing. You know, it's you know the here's the budget, here's the 5%. That's pretty clear. I think a lot of people um, struggle with, well, what about what's my rate per hour and how many hours I'm going to put in? And you said something to me, you are worth what you think you are. Yeah, no, you're 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 worth what you say you are. Is, is what I said. And yeah. that's, that's something I just, you know, started developing for myself. Like, and it just comes from experience of having, you know, different, um, get, getting paid different amounts and then like n- not getting paid enough and then thinking about how many hours it took to like prepare for say like a DJ set or, you know, whatever. And eventually I was just like, I won't work for below X amount. And I just said that for myself. So now whenever I, you know, negotiate or email with people, it's just like, that's like my base level. You know, and I only operate from there, you know. Well, but then how do you how do you land on that number? Because it's like one of the things you're saying is like you can be like, well, I'm only going to work for a million dollars a day. Mm-hmm. You know what yeah. I mean? But yeah. like that that is my rate, <laughs> <laughs> which I'll be paying for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, like how do you how do you arrive at a number that is not selling yourself short and is also not um, just absurd on the other end of the email other on the other end of the phone or at the other end of the table i mean something i always do and i think you you should never be afraid to do this is to ask your peers you know like i you know when i was first starting out djing i would ask other more established djs like what do you think is like a good amount for djing a whole night or something you know or like i'd ask you know for playing shows you know i'd ask more established musicians like okay like how how much is a fair amount for like at this venue or something, you know, and it's just from asking people, doing research, like, look, I, you can usually just search a lot of this stuff like online and um, just from experience. And then I think it's also another thing you shouldn't be afraid um, to talk about money, you know, with with the people that you're negotiating with, because, you know, they, they deal in numbers all day, you know, these these companies and stuff. And it's, and it's you just got to kind of get over it and just be like, this is it. What do you think? You know, and it's like, what's the worst thing that can happen? They say no. Right. And then you get into negotiating or you just move on. You know, that's, I, I, I kind of just like eliminated like my fear and my like ego. I think, I think like that's that. a key though, because there is a fear that I think a lot of, I, I feel it to, to this day still where, you know, I'll look at it and I'm about to put the number in the invoice and I'm like, mm, I'm not really sure. And there is that fear a little bit sometimes of, of putting the number that I think my time is worth. I mean, I've gotten to the point now where, you know, I'm very upfront about it. Like I, I talk about basically once once it's confirmed that we're thinking about working with each other, it's like, okay, so then this is my fee, you know, it's, mm-hmm. I think it's just easier for everyone once you get it out in the open. Right. Um, 
Now, Eric, I wanted to ask you, because in fashion, I guess from the outside, we look at whether it's online, a, a pop-up, um, or in retail, you see a price, and it just seems like pretty easily arrived at or pretty fixed. But you said to me that that's an everyday conversation. What, yeah. what, take us inside that everyday conversation, and why is that a conversation every day? Um, it's really hard, especially um, as an up-and-coming brand or um, where you're not necessarily established yet, where you can kind of just like set your own market price. But a lot of it is just following the market and seeing where we want to be and where we see ourselves being um, and seeing that price and then going into it, it's about the details in each piece, how long it takes to make, um, how complicated it is, how expensive the fabric is, uh, you know, all that goes into the pricing. And like customers are smart. Like I think just like your product has to, the value has to match and like, hello, <laughs> can y'all hear me? <laughs> Okay. Uh, I think just, oh, there you go. Um, yeah, like your product just got to match the, the price. I think like a lot of times, like he's saying we're young, like we've been doing this for only a year. Our brand's a year old. So um, a lot of, it is an everyday conversation. And, and going back to even, we're talking about like um, how much your work is worth and like setting a price. Um, that is, yeah, it's an everyday conversation. Yes. One of the things is that when you say, looking at the market, you look at something like the fast fashion world mm -hmm. and how much that undercuts prices, how much, how, and I think that that does also apply across under the other industries, but what are your thoughts on the way that, you know, things like fast fashion that are driving prices down kind of give people the perception that, well, maybe a hoodie isn't worth that much money or a jacket's not worth $500 when I can get one for $80, you know, like what, what are your thoughts on from both of you on that in terms of how you, how you think about and how you deal with the fact that a lot of consumers perceive things costing way less than they do. Yeah. Well, it's definitely difficult. Like it is difficult, but you know, we do things like having it made in Toronto. So there's like there's things, there's tangible things that we can do to make the value increase. Like a lot in the details, it's like if we're selling a plain white shirt. It's hard to sell it for $600. You can go to Walmart and buy it, you know, but if we have a couple details on it that kind of um, make it worth it for the consumer, then it makes sense to them. Yeah. Also, I think brand holds, holds a lot of value. So, um, you know, Zara is like, you can go get some fire from Zara, but you know, everyone else has it. Uh, mm -hmm. It's, it's, uh, it is something we talk about, but at the same time, it's something that we just see as separate it, like it is what it is it's it's definitely skewed everyone's perception of, of what it takes to um to make a garment mm -hmm. uh it's like um so yeah i mean we have our niche and we know where we are and the people that appreciate that are the people that are going to are the people that are going to buy it um zara is not for everyone like as much as the price is for everyone but not everyone wants it and mm -hmm. like that's not the market we're going after so that's kind of how we yeah, I think that's an interesting principle to pull away whether or not you're in fashion is like knowing your niche and, and finding that and a part of that is going to be like who am I make what I make who am I making it for right. and, and what are people expecting in that space. Um, Roly Eva just on that question of prices being driven down or the perception of how much whether it's like a DJ that's willing to 
play for eight hours. I mean, for, I, I make music. Yeah. And uh, people don't really want to like pay for it anymore. Yeah. Generally, so. Pretty much. That's a huge problem for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so on that note, like how, how do you deal with the, the perception? Because I think, and also too, on the music front, like, you know, it's just, just when you're settling into the fact that like J. Cole it drops an album, like then you're like, oh, Nas and Kanye are dropping an album. And then you hear something else from, is coming out tomorrow that people are tweeting about. And like, so there's also the perception that like, it's so quick, there's not a lot of value to it. How do you deal with, with um, that aspect of your main craft that the general perception is that it's, doesn't, it's not that valuable in terms of paying for it? I mean, personally, I just try to make something that has lasting value and also has like a tangible, like physical value to it too. Cause I, I make records, you know, and I have, you know, I try and make the presentation of the vinyl, you know, really special, you know, it's like purple vinyl and it's like gatefold and got all this stuff in it. And it's like, you know, you try and like build a story for your listener where it's like, okay, like I want to be more involved in the livelihood of the artist. You know, that's, you just kind of have to, diversify in every way that you can basically and it's like it's more than music now you know when you're when you're a musician it's all about you know like your your social like footprint you know and it's it's about the all, all the different ways that you can um monetize your music and for me like one of the main things is sync licenses you know and getting on tv shows and films and yeah that i think that's a major thing for a lot of musicians today yeah, I'm seeing that a lot, especially like a lot of smaller labels are really trying to get in that lane of getting stuff synced and getting stuff on TV um, where there's that money. Um, Eva, Sorry, I just oh, you want to jump on that? Yeah, yeah. Um, I just want to point out one thing. So we hurt ourselves by deciding to undervalue ourselves. So, and we heard the industry in general as well, because if you're going to say yes to a video that's $10,000 or $5,000 and then deliver something that's 50, uh, next time when they do give you 50, if they do, they're going to expect 150. So you're always just like one-upping yourself and hurting yourself in the long run as that's well not, as the and That's industry. not sustainable at all. It's not sustainable because you're going to hurt yourself, your relationships, and you're also then teaching the industry that they can get this really amazing work for basically no money. And then you're hurting the industry because if you're going to say yes to 5K, they're probably not going to give it to somebody else who's saying like it's 10K, like this is the realistic number. And obviously that's hard to do sometimes when you just want to do a project, but it's good to keep in the back of your mind because it's not just the industry, you're also hurting yourself. In the but what do you say to that person that is like, well, either I do this fit video that should be valued at $50,000 for 10,000 and then I have some work out there, I have some money, or I don't do it because they're not going to give me the 50,000 and I'm just like someone that tells people that I'm a director, but I have nothing to back it up. And that's the hard part. And you can't really speak for people who like need to pay their rent. Like if they want, you know, if they want to do the job, they're going to do the job. Um, but those are the people that we're aiming these conversations at, which is all of us basically. Um, just make sure that if you are doing them, you're getting more than just that, you know, small paycheck out of it. You're, you're leveraging that work to get other work and that you're not constantly saying yes to those jobs. There's people like in production specifically who will start as a production assistants for zero dollars, but don't be a production assistant for more than six months because you need to move forward and you need to move up. So then it, it's part of, part of a, having a vision, having a plan like, okay, I'm going to do this, but the reason why I'm taking this is because I have this step planned out and this thing is going to allow me to do that. 
Um, and I guess would that also tie back into your, your three R's, like the real, the relationship, like knowing that if I am taking this money yeah, at this rate and I'm going to put in this work and kind of pull on favors and, and really like kill myself doing this, that it is going to add to my real or it's going to build a important yeah. relationship? Yeah, 100%. Then at that point, if you're going to be not getting paid for it, but you are going to put in all the work, then at least you're investing back into yourself. And then the next thing that you do, you can actually use this and be like, hey, this is what I do. And therefore, I'm going to charge you more. You know, it's about growth. Um, on that note, I wanted to, just where we're focusing on freelancers, I wanted to follow up with the question around attitude versus talent and the role that that plays in terms of how valuable your work is or how others value your work. So I know one of the questions I was asking you was like, and I gave the example of Prince, you know, in terms of somebody who's like extremely talented and extremely loving to the people in his circle, but also extremely difficult to work with. And that question was like, someone who has like professional skills and a great attitude or someone who has exceptional skills and a horrible attitude? What do you choose as a producer? Yeah, so then we were talking like Prince is obviously a very special example. I think a lot of people would probably want to work with Prince, yeah. But um, there's a lot of really talented people in this industry. And even if you think about it personally, like if you're on set for 12 hours, would you rather be on set with someone who's nice or someone who's gonna make your life a living hell? Um, And I think the answer is pretty obvious. And unfortunately, there's a stigma around the entertainment industry that once you make it to a certain level or like to make it to a certain level, you have to be an asshole or you have to treat people like shit. But that's not, I really personally believe that that's not the case. I think you can still succeed by being nice. Um, And I have had multiple conversations where people have asked, oh, I want to work with this person or I want to bring them onto the team. What do you think? And I'll be like, yeah, they can do the job, but they're really not nice to work with. And it's not pleasant to have to apologize for somebody else or like hurt your crew in the process. And people don't get the job sometimes just because they're not nice. Um, of course, you have to be talented and hardworking. And, but like I said, there's a lot of people that are like that. So just be nice and you'll still be fine. You don't have to be an asshole to make, to make it ahead of everyone else. Yeah. You guys wanted to jump just, in on yeah, that one? Um, yeah. I'm just agreeing with what you're saying. Like um, even for us, when it's more business related, um, you know, we can work with the manufacturer and they can be kind of a dick. So it's like, I don't really want to work with you and I can find someone else. There's a lot of talent in the city. Um, so there are other people. So it's like, you, you really have, like teamwork is, is really important. Um, I mean, even if you see someone doing something alone, there's a whole team with them working on it and that, like, that's how they made it work, so. And the industry is small and everybody talks. So it's gonna get around if you're not a good person to work with. You got to be Prince to be Prince. <laughs> you got to be Kanye to act like Kanye. And if you're not, it's very tiresome. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a interesting point. But I love, I love the fact of driving that in where it's like there is that perception and percept, you know, pressure that like, oh, to make it to be on top, you have to be an asshole. You have to be like harsh with people. You, you, you know, you have to be ruthless. Um, and to hear that ethic that, no, you don't actually have to do that in a lot of ways, if you're really talented and a really thoughtful person and really thorough and reliable and empathetic that you can be even more successful. Exactly. And there's a difference between being firm and getting the job done. And sometimes people get stressed and like short, but there's a difference between that and then just being overtly condescending or rude to people. Um, and especially for women, I find that 
Sometimes women find, feel the need to just be harsher um, just to get their voice heard. And I know it's difficult because I've been in that position, um, but then people are gonna turn around and call you a bitch and they'll probably do that anyways because that's what women face every day. Um, but if they're gonna do that, then just make sure it's a reflection of who they are and not who you actually are. You don't need to be rude and harsh and hurtful to people to make it ahead. Because other, if you're doing well, your, your work will speak for itself. Just keep your head down and do your thing. Yeah, I agree. Like, I think the people that we've worked with the longest are the people we have the best relationships with, just personally. Um, yeah. Like our manufacturers, like we can go and just chat with her for hours. We don't have to even do any work. And it's like helped our relationship and helped our work. Like it's helped our design process. Just like being able to chat with her about her family and knowing her story, where she's come from. It's like, it's, it's really helped just form that relationship that we can rely on her to like give us her input if we're designing something here and there. It's like, we wouldn't have that. And she has an experience right. that we don't have, right? So hopefully. Well, it's like, even if it's business, it's never just business, yeah. right? Um, I wanted to check in just with the audience related to the next question, which is um, how many people here wear more than one hat in terms of like, so what do you do? It's like, you hesitate, like, uh, I, you know, which thing am I going to say today? Or there's a long list. People, yeah. Um, I, I feel like, I feel like there's some people who are like, ah, don't ask me that, but it, yes, the answer is yes. Um, you're an MC, a DJ, producer, host, writer, manager. Um, how, what are the challenges with wearing so many hats? And what is also, I know you see some advantages to it as well. Yeah, I feel like um, the challenges are, 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 are just in, in order to like keeping things straight and, and, and figuring out um, when you're going to work on what thing at what time, I feel like what, what happens with me is often like one week I'll just find myself doing more like administrative stuff and that'll be like my focus for that week. And other weeks I'll be more feeling more creative and like, you know, have ideas for music and I'll just like go all in on that. And it's just all about kind of like following the direction kind of organically. I try and make it, you know, um, a reflection of my life, you know, everything I do, like, you know, like I, I get an idea, like I'll have a conversation with somebody and then it'll turn into an article, you know, and, and it's like I, I try and keep things very organic and like not as structured. Um, but um, I think one of the, the, the positive things about that is I don't know, it's just kind of always come naturally to me. And I think that's the way it is for a lot of people where it was just like, yeah, I was like, I really like music a lot, you know, and I want to play music somewhere, but I don't know how to DJ. So I was like, well, let me just like get a club night and convince somebody, yo, I can DJ. And that ended up turning into me like becoming a How DJ. How did that first one go though? It wasn't good. <laughs> no, no, it was shaky. But luckily there weren't a lot of people there. Yeah. But then that but eventually it. Yeah, yeah. it worked out. I mean, I know you were talking about also one of the advantages being multiple revenue streams. Like when something's not popping for you in this area, you can, you know, mm -hmm. get some work in that area. Yeah, I think that has been very helpful. I mean, the fact that I'm a musician and a lot of my income is either from shows or publishing coming in and that's like a lot of waiting often, you know, so it's it's really cool to have other things that are happening that, you know, pay at different times, you know, so it's, it's, it's I think it's as an artist today, especially, you know, who's primarily a musician, it's important to have as many different revenue streams as possible because, you know, as I was saying before, like with music and primarily coming from streaming from Spotify, which doesn't particularly pay very well, um, it's important to just make the best of all your other avenues that you can while staying true to yourself. 
Yeah. What, what about the rest of you in terms of wearing those multiple hats? Like, how do you deal with that? Because, you know, especially like the challenges of it. I think the biggest challenge well, for me, and Eric and I talk about this all the time, is like just finding time to actually design and create. Because there's always things to do. There's always like the administrative things or you always have to send this email by the end of the day. And like designing is like fluid and it's hard to like just sit down and find a time to put two hours and like design a shirt, you know? So like I, I find like Eric and I, we get in these like zones where you know, it'll happen in a day and we'll design 10 things in like three hours and like it'll just come like this. And then oh, the rest of the time is more administrative stuff and running around and working with manufacturers and stuff like that, so. Yeah, definitely. I, and, and about wearing um, a lot of different hats, I feel, you know, when we started out, um, it was hard to get someone who's a photographer to work with us or someone or to get our a stylist to pick our, our clothes and, and you know, so a lot of it at the beginning was just learning ourselves and I feel like that's why a lot of people here have a lot of different hats because we have access to, to learning how to do it. So, you you're know, forced to. yeah, you're forced to, um, you know, no one wants to take our photos. So I got a camera and learned how to take photos and now we do our own photography. So it's like, uh, or even just like in my past work, I, I thought like, you know, I want to do, I want to be a designer and I want to like have a clothing line. So you know, how am I going to get this into a store? Well, I'll just be the, I'll become a buyer and then take my, you know what I mean? Like I'll learn how it's done, get there and, and then, become and then do it. Become a buyer and then buy your own clothes. Yeah. You realize you know, that like, you're not allowed to. Oh, you wouldn't be the first person that took that route. I remember um, Oliver was from OVO was talking about that at the summit where like his, I think he worked in the lounge, um, which was like a hip hop clothing store that was right near much music yeah. for years and, and learned the fashion industry from, from like, just fresh out of high school through literally moving up to the place of being a buyer. And sorry to interrupt, that reminds me, um, one of the really good things about uh, doing multiple different things is you get to learn about um, how the other person would feel, you know, when you work with other people. I think that's like the key thing about that is that like, yeah, you work, you start like getting into, you know, for instance, like the merch or whatever. And you're like, okay, yeah. So it's like, now I know how to deal with like a designer because like I've like done that side of it now. You know, it's like. Well, especially for graphic design, like I have a heart for graphic designers. I feel like everybody should take some kind of like design sensitivity course. Like people like, I want it to be round but sharp, like, you know, and like, I need it to be really bright, but super dark, you know, <laughs> whereas like how, you know, let the designer do their job. And I think when you've tried to do it yourself, you have more empathy with, for how hard it works. Um, or sorry, how, how hard it is to do that work. Eva, I know you work with, so as a producer, bringing on so much talent, do you ever, from that standpoint, get maybe confused like I don't know what this person does like they do multiple things like is that ever something that works against talent you might work with where it's like well they're kind of a writer but they're also like a grip or they're you know are you a director or what like uh no I actually like when people do multiple things I think that we're we tend to be pigeonholed so like if you're a producer you're a producer but if there's multiple things that feed you and your soul and what you want to do, then you should just go ahead and do all of them, but just be vocal. So I've worked with people who are a producer and a grip, and I just talk to them like, oh, are you free this week? Like, what do you do? Get to know the people. I don't think there's any problem with doing more than one thing. The only issue is like what you guys were saying is time. So you're going to have less time to dedicate to each one of those crafts. So if you can find the time, then for sure go for it. Yeah, I know. I was asking um, really that question of like, okay, so you do these things, but do you have like a number one, number two, number three, that like if it comes down to it and I have, you have, you know, a 
tour as an MC versus like some a uh, bunch of bookings as a DJ, like, and you have to choose between, you know, is is ranking those multiple things something you find helpful? I think yeah, the most important thing is just being really organized. Because if you're gonna do all these different things, like you you have to become an extremely organized person, and that's something I just kind of had to teach myself because I'm not naturally very organized. Um, but so from you, so you're saying, and I think that's an important point because I think a lot of people feel like being organized, like oh, I'm not organized. This is my nature. I'm not. Mm-hmm. I'm just a disorganized person, or I'm you know I'm a creative, so I'm not organized. But you're saying you feel like that's something that's not your personality or nature, but mm-hmm. you learned. Yeah, and then I just I was like, okay, well, I have to be if I want to be able to do all these different things. So it's like, you know, keeping really good notes on when thing different things are due, and you know, having like a really like detailed calendar, you know, like rock those calendar apps, like have it all like together. You know, that was really important for me. But I mean, my main thing is rap. And, you know, for instance, I just put out an album. So that has become my like touring and and that has become like my primary focus. But I always keep like in the back of my mind, okay, it's like, what's like the next thing, you know? Yeah, and I think like going back a little bit, but because we had to wear so many hats as well, like we were able to, now we're able to start working, doing other things. Like we're not, if we just stuck to designing clothes, we wouldn't be able to start working with artists like we are now, mm-hmm. you know, because we were able to like, you know, pick up a camera and like we, we had to come up with our own direction and do all that stuff. Like we had to style. Now we had to go around styling. Now Eric styles for all these other brands. Well, can you, you know? give a little bit more? Cause I think maybe not everyone knows that. So Will Studios, if you know, you looked at the event, you know, is a clothing line, but what is that other work that you're doing that you're talking, that you're referring to? Yeah, so we're starting to do like more like kind of direction stuff with artists. Like um, we're working with one artist, John Vinyl. Um, just on his branding and his uh, just overall creative direction. Um, so I guess consulting. Uh, and that's kind of, you know, when we first made the name Will Studios, we, we knew that we wanted to do different things. Um, and not just designing clothes, we wanted to kind of expand and, and do as much as we could. You know, so. And like having to wear all those hats like has helped us now like kind of lead into those things. Yeah, and I think a lot of people feel that way too, like of of knowing that okay, I'm right now I'm doing this, but I do see myself building into other lanes as well. And it's not always clear. Like I, you didn't know what that was going to be, though. Yeah. You're saying basically by doing the styling, doing the photography, doing those other elements, it ended up coming together down the road, not from the outset, but from down the road into being able to do this kind of creative direction with as yeah. another lane. Yeah, definitely. Like- when we like started Will Studios, we called it Studios because we wanted it to be just more than clothes. And like I think like what our initial idea was like we wanted to design furniture as well, and we haven't got there yet. But uh, all the things that have come along with just doing a clothing line is like all those things have come into play now. And like I I didn't think of it at the time. I'm sure you didn't either. But we just kind of had to do those things, and now like we're getting work off it. Yeah. So. Yo, I, I want to know when that furniture is like twenty one, twenty twenty one, twenty two. Heard it here first. Um, so there's a story I shared with each of you, um, and I'll just share it briefly with the audience. Um, there's a podcast that Stretch and Bobito do of like '90s hip hop fame. It's now on NPR. If you haven't checked it out, it's really good. Um, they had an episode with a tattoo artist from LA named Mr. Cartoon, and he had this goal. He wanted to design a shoe for Nike. And so he had some connects, got him, um, landed him an opportunity to be flown out to New York at some big Nike party and to work at the party doing like live tattooing. 
And one of his like OG mentors told him like, what's your goal? He's like, design a shoe. He's like, don't do it then. Like, don't take that money, don't do it. He's like, you're not gonna make the jump from the guy who does the tattoos at the party to the guy who's designing the shoe um, in terms of that relationship with Nike. Um, and I thought it was a really interesting story because, you know, and, and I want to put that as a question now to all of you is, are there opportunities that you said no to or, or what are your thoughts on saying no to opportunities that are just not aligned to your vision and may actually hurt where you're trying to go? I think what you're specifically talking about is very related to branding. So I'll let these guys talk about that. Um, but in, from the production end, um, saying no to certain jobs that are just not worth it budget-wise, um, just because you have to set a precedent. There's certain that you only have so much time in a day, and you can't take on every single project. Um, so for me, if it's under a certain budget, I won't do it unless it's like a friend or an artist that I think is worth investing in. Um, but at some point, you just it's not about being arrogant or having an ego. It's just about understanding where you're trying to go and what things you're willing to spend your time on. Well, and part of the story when you were working at Mad Rock was also like saying no to, well, we're not going to do every kind of production and every kind of, like, I think, what's the tagline? We make music videos. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but it, there was a time, right, where, where the focus was like, oh, well, we could do corporate videos and we can do all, you know, all kinds of different things. Yeah, exactly. But eventually saying no because that because there was more value in being known for one thing. Exactly. It, again, it's just about building your brand and making sure that you're associating yourself with the brands that make sense for you and the people that make sense for you as well. What are your thoughts? Yeah, um, I actually have um, kind of a story specifically about this where um, I got reached out to by a certain brand about um, doing some sponsored tweets and it was, it was like a lot of, it was like a relatively large amount of money for sending a couple of tweets. But, you know, I agonized about it and eventually I just didn't do it because it just would have, it was just so not aligned with who I am as an artist, you know, and I was just like, damn. But the good thing about it and the, 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 the thing that I learned is I learned that how much a brand like that would be willing to give you. <laughs> and so now, and then I used that information later for a brand that I was like a little bit better with and I did it. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, and that, that's so interesting because like <laughs> a, lot, a lot of times um, we're talking about that inside knowledge of let's like seeing budgets, seeing what um, brands or companies are, or people are willing to pay for certain work. Yeah, and that's where the uh, the mentor thing that you guys brought up comes up. And it's really useful to know somebody who's gone through it, who's out there doing it, um, and just to ask them the questions. And the industry is pretty open. Like, I feel like if there's somebody who you really want to speak to, um, just try reaching out. People usually have info on their, like, Instagram or, you know, find even an info email. Um, if there's somebody that you want to mentor you, then it's totally worth reaching out because they'll be the best source of info. Because as we're trying to explain, there's no clear answer to how much you should just charge for a certain thing you know yeah i do want to get more into the mentor question but i wanted to give out yeah. <laughs> i sorry i just had that. like a, a similar story to the nike the nike story you said um i think it's a lot about him also believing in himself and, and where he wanted to be yeah. so a uh, very similar story uh as i said i was working as a buyer and i i left that for um 
really putting my time into the clothing. But I, a job opportunity came up, which was pretty cool. It was like opening a new store and, uh, you know, it would have taken up a lot of my time. Um, but it's steady money. So it's like that, that debate, whether if you want like steady money or do you want to, you know, live your freelance life and be a creative. So, uh, you know, I, I turned the job down. It was a good opportunity, but I turned it down. And then within like two weeks, another opportunity came up that uh, I wouldn't have had if I had taken the job. So, it, you know, a lot of different things can happen. It's, it's, a lot of it's just believing where you want to be. So, yeah. Agreed. Like we've had opportunities to be stocked in stores and they just have, a lot of them haven't been the right fit. And it's hard. You're like a year into your business and you're trying to make money, trying to turn your creative into money. And like to say no to those opportunities, you don't know if you're going to get another one. But you also know that where your brand, where you see your brand, where you need your brand to get to, and sometimes it's just not the right fit. And you have to say no when it's tough. Definitely well, it's tough. And, and that no comes um, from the vision and really specifically of like, who do you, where do you see your clothes and, and what brands do you see yours sitting beside, right? Exactly. Um, and one of the things I wanted to follow up on that with you guys is, um, you know, the, we're also in a world where a lot of creatives, a lot of artists and a lot of really talented people haven't come through formal training. Um, they haven't come through like some a particular school and but have developed their skill and developed their craft. Um, and, and I think that creates sometimes insecurity, doubt, like, you know, fake it till you make it or you feel like imposter syndrome. Um, but you guys were talking to me about how not going through that formal training was a benefit to you? How so? Yeah, I think well, Eric and I like started in this together. Like we didn't have training. Like we started this studying for an exam one day and we're just like, both of us had wanted to start a clothing line. So we just decided to do it. And I think because we learned together, it's like helped us kind of shape our design process and like kind of like given us like a, connection yeah. you know like like we think the same way like it's like we've been to school together because we've had to like be resourceful and search our do our google searches ourselves and learn from trial and error together so like it's kind of helped shape and create the direction and aesthetic for will studios one of the things i love that you said um about that to me was along the lines of comparing your end product to other end products that you really respected so maybe this other brand they do have the formal training, but when you when people who are looking at the two pieces from each, your brand and that brand on the rack are seeing like, if not comparable quality, maybe even better quality in what you're doing. Right. Like I think, you know, everyone in this room knows that we do Will Studios, but someone from like Amsterdam, for example, they don't know who we are. All they see is the products. They, they see the finished products. So, I mean, to them, they don't care what school I went to. They just care if it's a nice shirt kind of thing. So. I always like I always say this. My dad, my dad is sitting there right there. Hey, and, uh, dad. <laughs> he always told me this, and it's so it, it has helped me through so many things. Like he always told me that nobody cares how you studied for the test, just about the mark you get. And so I just feel like if a product at the end of the day is as good as the next person's product, then it doesn't really matter where I came from. I should make sure that my product is just as good as the brands I sit beside, and I know I'm good. I have nothing to worry about. Yeah, I think there's something really powerful about that that applies to whether you're a photographer, a director, a writer. Like, again, a lot of people struggle with that. Like, oh, I, well, I wasn't formally trained in that and I didn't go to school like this person did or I didn't spend 10 years like working on this craft. But that end product, if it's on the level, then it's on the level. Mm -hmm. um, 
Eva, one of the things I wanted to talk about is, you know, there's a lot of romanticism around the creative industries and you get into it because it's your passion. You want to create, um, you know, you, you love the, the design process or the performance element. Um, but what would you say is the percentage of your oh, given week that is actually that creative side once you're, you're really rolling in the industry? And I think I would love to hear from each of you on that, like how much of your time is the part that you got into it for? So, I'm sure you don't love like grant applications and making budgets. Yeah. Um, So on the production side of things, production is already very logistics heavy. Um, And in order, like you guys said, like in order to progress you're gonna have to do like the emails and getting back to people and doing the budgets and doing all that stuff so I think production wise a very large majority of my week is spent on paperwork and numbers and living behind uh you know excel um but I also like to write so I make sure that I set a certain amount of time every week where I just force myself to not be in a space where I have to do the logistics work, you know? And, and how much, like, can you break that down ratio? Like, It would be like one day a week that I for sure give myself, which is very little. Um, it's better than most, right. I would say. Right. Yeah. I think it's so easy to get caught up. Like you almost, you find yourself, as you guys were saying, like, what was your, your story on that? Yeah, um, I mean, the designing part, what he was saying before, it's hard to find time to sit down and actually design. But in terms of the actual business, um, if a season is six months, there's two seasons in a, in a like a fashion calendar. So, I mean, if a season is six months, more than half of that is is the product already on the floor. So, you, out of six months, maybe you have one month to, to make some clothes, and then after that, it's all business. Um, and I guess you get some cre- you get to be creative when you do photo shoots and uh, mar- different marketing videos, fashion shows, stuff like that. But I mean, it's not that much time. Like, yeah, yeah. Like when we when we started out, like. I guess I thought, I can't remember now, but I feel like I thought we just designed clothes and like they go in stores and I didn't realize like all the other stuff that went along with it. But, you know, I, I, I enjoy those other parts too. And like, you can be creative and you know, like, I guarantee our line sheets are like some of the nicest line sheets out there. Cause like, I, cause like, I like, you know, we, for, I take the time to like make them look good. And like, I enjoy mm-hmm. that part of it. You know, like, mm-hmm. like you could be creative in like even the logistics side. Like yeah. I, that's how I find yeah, that's interesting because I think that also ends up coming down to one, your value, but also your brand. Like if your brand is present in even those kind of mundane details of the business, and I'm sure you find that as well, Eva, um, in your work. Like, um, but really, what about you in terms of, you know, you, you don't spend every waking minute on stage or in the studio? No, but I mean, I don't know. I, I guess the way because I do so many different things, my creativity is, is very fluid. So, you know, I feel like I'm always kind of like chipping away at a verse or something in my head or just like I'll get an idea for something and I'll just like write some notes down or just like record something really quick. And I feel like it's always kind of happening. But, you know, there's some periods of time where I'll be like more focused on like writing an article or something. And then I'll be, I'll just actually have to like set out a certain amount of times. Like I'm going to just like rap for eight hours. You know, and it's like I have to kind of be like strict with myself because if I don't, you know, my next album will come out in like four years. So, yeah, it's just about like kind of having self-discipline, you know. Yeah, and I I think like Eric and I are lucky too because we live together. So like 
we are forced to be around each other. So like, if I draw a design on the board one day, like just walking by the board and draw something, like he will see it. So like, I think like I say like those, those times where we get in a day and we design ten things. Well, yeah, but they didn't all start in that day. And like, it's like you know, with your phone now, like I'll be sitting on the subway, like that's my design time. Like you know, I, like in my notepad, I'll be like drawing things out and like sending Eric ideas or, like pulling references and doing all these things. So like. At the end of the day, when we have the time to be creative, I'm like prepared and like ready to go. So then, for to each of you, how do you deal with balance then? Because I mean, if your work is your life and every waking moment, um, and then also you have like family relationships, right? Like there's people around you who are not a part of your industry who don't want to like deal with you as your job or your role or your industry. They want to deal with you as a person. So like, how do each of you? find balance in that where your your tendency is to always want to be creating and always doing that work. Yeah, that's the thing about being a freelancer is that you can be just always working, you know, and I think one of the things that I try and do is I try and just kind of protect my Sundays, you know, where I, I just won't do anything on Sunday, you know, and then the rest of it is like no holds barred. But, you know, it's, I think it's important to like have some time to just reflect as well. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I'm I'm trying to do that with like weekends. Almost always, it's like that's family, you know. Unless it's something really exceptional, and then I try to make it up um, to the family during the week. Mm-hmm. If I if if I really felt like I had to be somewhere on the weekend, yeah, I don't know. I I always struggle with that. Like I definitely struggle with separating work and personal. My mind's like always going. So like, but like you know what? The people who are around me and know me, like, they know that's me, and like they they get that and they don't really give me too much trouble about it so you don't feel like the pressure to turn it off no ah, that's good really. that's good yeah really. i have a really hard time balancing that too and i actually decided to go freelance in order to try and find more time for family and friends um but like you're saying like the people that are around us are usually people that are in the industry and like when we have like friend time we talk about work all the time <laughs> but that's just the nature of it because like, we don't have a job that's like that's boring necessarily like you're constantly just talking about creative and new ideas and like I don't think that's necessarily bad I don't know if that's like a good thing to say or not but like I don't (laughs) think it's bad to just dedicate yourself to your work um as long as like I try to make time for family when I can yeah I think again like that's a it's a really subjective thing but it's like the type of life you want to live I guess right and it's like if that's what you're passionate about then it's great to have people that you know, instead of talking about like who's tweeting what, you're talking about ideas and and you're talking about things you're gonna make and and kind of have a brain trust in those friendships that that can guide those things. Exactly. So you have to actively build your team around you that's gonna be that's gonna want to move forward the same way that you do, so that they don't make you feel bad if you miss a birthday. They just understand. It just mm-hmm. takes a little bit of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like I'm just thinking about it now. Like I, I, I find it hard to separate work and personal, but work to me is not even really work like it's like you know like sean came over the other day we were just chopping it up but like like that's just my friend coming over but we're just talking about being creative the whole time i can't Mm -hmm. turn i can't turn that off that is just me so like it isn't really work i'm just you know like it's all one and the same Mm -hmm. yes it's it's interesting but it's like i hear that and it's like it's said like a true workaholic you know what i mean and (laughs) but which is at the same time it's like when you're when you're what they say what you um when you do what you love you never work a day in your life but i think the flip side of that is when you do what you love you would never have a day off you know and so um protecting that time i think is important 
But it's also important to know that the, that's the choice you're making by yeah. wanting to be in this industry. Well, and maybe looking at it in seasons, right? Like maybe this is the phase of my life where 24 seven, that's what I'm doing. And eventually maybe I'll be able to reach a point where I can scale that back a bit and you know. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Take it to the grave. <laughs> um, I wanna go back to the question of pricing. Um, and this is, you know, to everybody. I think a lot of times when we are looking at what we're going to charge or how we price things, it's really like the performance, right? So if you're going to see you're a DJ, it's like, oh, I'm playing this two hour set. Not necessarily saying, well, for the level I want to do things at, it's going to take X hours of preparation or, you know, I'm delivering this visual, but the scouting and all this other research and, 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 you know, that kind of thing. How do you how do you think of that element in pricing, and how do you deal with communicating that? Where it's like, well, why am I paying you that much money for two hours, but you're not really paying me for two hours? You're paying me maybe for a lot more time and a lot more preparation. Yeah, I mean, I can relate to that um, in styling because let's say the photo shoot is scheduled for four hours, and you're asking for a certain amount. Um, you know, it's not just four hours; it's all of the days before pulling and then returning all the clothes after. So, you know, it's, it's actually like a full week long process. And, your, and then doing all your receipts. Yeah, and then, <laughs> and then expenses, you know? So um, it's a lot more than, than what it seems, I feel, so, yeah. But that's where it's important to educate the person that's hiring you if they don't know, is like spelling out like, this is what you're paying me for, this is how long it takes. You can't expect a person who isn't in the industry to know what it takes. So just tell them. and. And it's on us to educate people sometimes. Have you gotten better at that over the years? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Because you, you want to like always just say yes and like get the job and do whatever. But eventually you just get tired and you're like, nah, this is how much it actually costs. I know. Related to that, I, one of the things I asked you really was if you ever felt the pressure to like, well, if I'm going to do this DJ set as an example, that's two hours at the level I do it, it's going to take X number of hours of preparation. Mm -hmm. But to say, well, if that's, you ever feel the pressure to say, well, maybe I won't put that much preparation in it and I'll just, you know, kind of nah. water it down a little bit. Nah, you can't do that. Because why, it, why though? Why? Well, well, for me, it's like every time I perform or do anything, that's my reputation out there, right? So I can't put on a wax show ever because that'll totally lower my value for like future events. So, I mean, it goes back to what I was saying before, it's just kind of being firm about what you consider your value to be, you know, and that's based on, you know, how, however many hours of rehearsing I have to do, or, you know, it's also just talking to other people in, in the industry, you know, like other, other artists and, you know, talking to my booking agent, talking to people like that. And, you know, I, I, I it's kind of hard to say for like music because, you know, it, it is what it is a lot of the time. But um, I mean, like for DJing, it's definitely like the re research, hours of re research. You can definitely like break it down into almost like an algorithm for how much you, you think you should be paid, basically. Yeah, and I agree with that. I think that in the on the film side, you definitely always want to do the best that you can, whether the job is really small or really big. But a good tip is if you don't think they're paying you enough, you can come up with your idea and then be like, this is how this is my idea and this is how much it'll actually cost. But if you don't have the money, here's where we can scale back and always take things off camera. So things that are gonna hurt them. Because they don't care if you prepare less or more, they're gonna expect the same from you. Mm -hmm. But if you're like, here's this thing with three scenes, but if we take the two of these scenes out, now you can afford it, 
and honestly, a lot of the time they'll come back and be like, okay, well, what if we don't take this out and we just pay you a little more? So like hurt them and what's going to hurt them is what they see, not what you have to do in the back end. I think that's a really interesting insight. Wow. And like, <laughs> yo, I feel like pausing on that one for a second. Drop <laughs> yeah. knowledge. Yeah, yeah that no, mean. because that, that's, that's a really important strategy because it's like, well, okay, fine. If, if, you know, I could take my research time out of there, like, I don't care about your research time. Like, what's it going to look like, right? So I think that's, and then, just, you know, you got my mind thinking about in different disciplines, how would that kind of approach apply, you know? So, and I think, you know, for people who are in the audience in all kinds of different disciplines, I'm sure like that's a jewel for sure to, to take on. Um, I want to let everyone know, we're going to go into some Q&A soon. We have a couple more questions. Um, and this, where we're going to go to right now is, is that conversation about working for free or really like dramatically lowering your rate. And just to start with um, Raul um, and Eric, in terms of how do you determine a situation where this is worthwhile of not getting paid at all um, or accepting like a very, very low rate? Where, like what are the factors that would actually make that worthwhile to you? Um, uh, to me, it, it depends on also uh, like the client. Eva spoke on this earlier. It's like who it is that's asking you to do it. Um, you know, like do they have the money? Um, I also think it's it's you know can this lead to more work later? Uh, like, do we believe in this in this artist, for example? Um, do we think that you know he's gonna blow? He's gonna be huge, and you know, like right now, if we work together, we can do this together. We can both grow. So yeah, it's just about be making sure it's like mutually beneficial and there's a mutual respect between the two people. I think that that's a huge thing. Like if there's like, if you have a good relationship with the person, then if you see like a mutual, if it's mutually benefit beneficial for you too, and then also like having a plan of like where it can go and what, what this can become and how this relationship can develop. I want to follow up on that plan thing. Cause it could also be like, well, they worked with you free for free now. And then when they grow in their career, they're going to go pay the person that charges what you should have charged. Um, how do you how do you manage that uncertainty? Or like you're saying, like I'll do it with someone I think we can grow with. How do you assess that as well? Like how do you answer that question for yourselves? Like that you feel certain. Mm, I think a lot of times it's gut feeling. Yeah. Like there's not a science behind it. I think a lot of times it's a gut feeling and. And like, yeah, you have a plan for the future, but also you got to take in what you're doing right now. So like, I don't want to, when I say mutually beneficial, like, yeah, for the long run, but also mm -hmm. like if we work on just this project, is it going to be mutually beneficial for the both of us? Right. And then, and then just making sure your product is good. And if your product's good and it's helping them and it's helping you, I don't know, I guess there's no reason to really kind of break that relationship. Like, in terms of what, yeah. yeah. In terms of fashion or, you know, being a creative and what we do, so. I know, Eva, you, you shared a story with me where you did make that investment of your time and yeah. it didn't work out. Can you just share a little bit about that? Yeah, I think, so the first thing that, that they said is like believing in the person. I think that's the most important thing because if you're about to invest your time, you have to believe that it's actually worth doing. If you don't, just stop and don't do it. The other thing is the person has to want it more than you do and they have to be extremely hardworking and pushing and putting in more effort than you're about to put in in order for it to be worth it. Like those are the two things in my case. What, what are signals of that to you? Like what, what are the things you kind of show you like, okay, this person is working as hard as me. Like 
this person wants it as bad yeah. as I do. So it's about the kinds of things they're doing. Like, are they out there like networking, talking to people? Are they really, you know, if it's music, like, are they out there making the music? Are they trying to make relationships for themselves? Um, are they sending things when they're going to say, th then when they say they're going to send things, are they showing up on time? Um, things like that, where they respect your time is really important. And then they seem to like really want it and really be pushing for it. So those two things, and then everything else is just a gut feeling. Because even if you are believing in the music, that's you, your opinion and also your gut feeling. Yeah, yeah. I feel that. Yeah, and I think another thing is like also making sure for us, at least <clears throat> when it's under Will Studios, that it aligns with our brand. Like that's like, ba that's like one of the main um, things I would say like um, in terms of figuring out who we're going to work with and why we would work with them for free. Well, if it aligns with our brand and then I think that's like a very good indicator. Is that a gut thing or is there a process for you assessing that? Like what are the factors again where you're saying like, yeah, yeah. it's both. Yeah. I mean, I feel like you can kind of see their past work and you'll know what they're about. I mean, in terms of like a corporate client and then, and then someone that's not corporate, you can kind of see like if you don't see yourself being a um, commercial stylist, for example, you want to be a creative, you want to do editorials and you want to work for fashion um, lines and magazines and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, you know where you want to go, and so you you know what you want to do. Really, I know you you had a story about um, publishing, you know, and being willing to kind of like go without credit um, with certain artists or forego publishing with a longer play in mind versus situations where you didn't want to do that. Yeah, and it's also like the the nature of just working with maybe like a new artist that I really believe in. And maybe they don't like have the budget or whatever and, and, and you just want to take a flyer on it because you believe in what they're doing. But um, yeah, there's sometimes where it, it makes sense to, you know, just, you know, work on some music and just see what, what happens with it in the future. Uh, and I find every, most of the times I've done that, I end up hearing from that artist maybe like five years later when they're way more established being like, OK, remember when you did this thing for me? Well, now is one thing that actually will pay. You know, and I, I, I think it's just good to just like work as much as you can, you know, and just collaborate with as many people as possible. And that's been like the wave I've been on lately. What would you say, like right across the panel are the pitfalls, though, of, of that? Like, I, th I definitely see that, like you're building relationships, you're show, show, sowing seeds, you're building your reel, you're showing people what you can do. You're using your gut to kind of see people's trajectory and getting that chance to develop that relationship early on. Because, I mean, that's people are going to look to like, well, when it comes down to I got this big project, who do I know that can do this? Who's done this before with me? Who do I like working with? Um, but are there some pitfalls to doing things for that relationship and doing things for free for that exposure? Well, I don't want to say wasting your time, but just not using your time for other things. It's like the opportunity cost, right? If I'm going to spend X amount of days working on this person's stuff and it doesn't go anywhere, um, well, then I could have spent that time working on something different. But I mean, obviously a lot of art is a gamble or like it's just hard to say like whether you're actually going to get a return on your investment. Um, so it's not necessarily a waste of time if it just doesn't go. It's more hurtful if the person just like doesn't work with you or like, you know, that relationship is bad more so than if they don't get picked up because that's just the nature of, of, you know, the work that we do. Sometimes that other thing does happen though, right? Yeah, it does happen. Sometimes you'll like go into it and then you'll realize the person is either like wasting your time or not really as dedicated or just are more talk than they're actually willing to do. Um, and that's the stuff that hurts the most. Yeah, I, th I think another thing um, that made me think of is, 
you know, there, there's something um, about the artistic ecosystem, you know, where, you know, you, you have to pay people fairly and you, and you, you don't want to do too many things for free because then these brands or these companies think, oh yeah, like there's mad people who just do it for free. Mm-hmm. I think that's like one of the most important things as artists that we all have to do for each other. You know, yeah, because yeah. I, I've seen it happen in so many different ways, whether it's like, you know, like there's if there's like a DJ willing to just like play for like 10 hours straight for free, it's going to mess up the entire like DJ ecosystem in that city. <laughs> right. Like let's book the 10 hours for free guy. <laughs> yeah. It's like I love that guy. <laughs> the, the, um, j- just on, on that note, though, uh, moving into th- the conversation around mentorship. Um, I wanted to go back to that because I think like a lot of the things you all share with me was like, oh, well, being on set helped me to see all of the pieces that it takes and helps me to understand like when now I'm leading a project, what that takes or like doing all these elements, you know, you know, the styling, the photography, all those pieces, like you really get to know that. Um, and, a, and part of the thing you things you were all saying was seeing budgets, whether it's like seeing what a brand is willing to pay for, um, sponsored tweets or seeing what it actually costs behind the scenes to manufacture something where initially you guys were paying a lot more to manufacture than you are now um or seeing like what what project budgets really look like um you know for a quality piece of work how how do you connect that kind of information to having mentors finding mentors and really like utilizing mentorship a lot of the time production companies aren't going to just freely share budgets with you because, you know, there's margins and things involved and sometimes people don't want you to see how, how much certain people are making. So that's where having a mentor who is willing to do that for you is so useful because then you will see like, oh, this person actually charges this much. Well, that means that people are willing to pay, like you guys are saying, that much. Um, so having somebody in your corner that is going through it and is willing to share their knowledge with you is so important because it's not just free knowledge out there for everyone because you can't access it sometimes. And, um, and, you know, whenever younger artists have hit me up asking for advice, like I always help them because the older artists help me in the same way. And I feel like that's what information is for. It's for being shared. Like I've never, I, I, I hate when people are kind of like, you know, they don't want to tell people shit because it's, that's, I feel like that's the innate point of information is to be spread, you know? So, I I feel like, you know, in my role as a mentor is just to is just to listen and, and help as much as I can whenever people ask, you know. Do you, do you think people are asking enough? I think they could be asking more for yeah. sure. I mean, it's like I think a lot of people are often scared to ask. And I feel like we, we should really get rid of that stigma of being afraid to ask each other about different aspects of, of the industry side of being an artist, because, you know, I feel like corporations don't want us to be comfortable talking to each other about these things, yeah. you know? And it's, it's like, if you do have the knowledge, don't be afraid to share it. Like, just because, like, keeping information to yourself is not going to make you a better person or a better artist. Like, you should just, sh- I love sharing anything I know with the people around me because you can all collectively grow. And there is a lot of room, there's enough room for all of us, so just collectively growing and getting smarter and better is going to help you in the long run. And it'll be reinvesting into the younger generations because in five years, there's going to be people who are younger than you. They're also doing it and you want to stay relevant and you want to stay in the know. So if you're willing to share, they'll be willing to share back with you down the line. Mm -hmm. 
Did you guys have thoughts on that? Uh, I definitely think having a mentor is is huge um, and asking for help and, and to try and get this knowledge because I mean, just I, I have a mentor, I assist, um, you know, and since doing that, I feel like I, before doing it, I thought I knew everything. I thought I was like, oh, I know that, like I could do it. But, you know, when you actually see it happen and see someone who's gone through it, you actually grow a lot. You can kind of like step back and see like where you actually were and, and um, it just really helps you grow, I feel. Yeah. Yeah. And like for the clothing, we didn't have we didn't have a mentor. So like, I I see both sides of the coin because, like, we learned through just trial and error and like experience and like, I can totally see where having a mentor would have helped us along the way. Yeah. And just like in terms of like, where to buy fabric and like, where to be looking for manufacturing and stuff like that. Like we didn't know those those yeah. questions. Like that was Google for us, you know. Like, and that was like spending way more money than we should have. And just yeah. like little tricks of the trade that you just kind of pick up that you would like that a mentor would have definitely could have told us once and we would have learned. It's interesting because it's a kind of a fine line. I, I there's one time I was working for a music festival and I was supposed to get sponsorship and I ended up landing two competing newspapers, both as sponsors. And the guy who runs the festival is like, how did you do that? And I'm like, why would that be a problem? It's like, they're competitors. They don't spot. And I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? And it, so it was a good thing, right? For the festival. But it's like, if I had a mentor in that situation, they would have said, choose one of the two that you really want, or you're going to have to just get one of them. Yeah, I think it de definitely helps you find your own lane for sure. Like, yeah. we, because we had to search so much, like, I feel like, you know, like, where we get our fabrics from is not where other people get their fabrics mm -hmm. from. And like, I think that's something that like has made our brand different, you know? So I definitely think just like be, having to do it ourselves has definitely been beneficial. So yeah, I see both sides of the coin. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I think that's a really interesting balance for it that we're all gonna have to like work out and figure out for ourselves, like how much of it is a benefit to just prototype, do things, figure things out, learn through experience and how much of it is like accessing people who have that information and also sharing that information. Um, how, how much do you all think fear, whether it's fear that like someone else is going to take your spot and that's why you have to hold the information or fear that like this person's not going to give you their time or, you know, like their fear of rejection for asking, like how much do you think fear is a part of whether you're, we're not sharing enough information as a creative community or we're also not asking enough? Well, <laughs> I just feel like I'm always, I'm like, I get definitely nervous to ask other people, but I don't know when I think about it, when people ask me, it's, it's like nothing, you know, like I don't even think twice. So yeah, I get it. But at the end of the day, like people are good people. Like yeah. just ask. <laughs> yeah. We're all in the same industry. So yeah. everyone knows how it was and or how it is. Yeah. So it's like, I mean, they're, they're kind of, just, they were just like you or they are just like you. So. They know what it like. They know that fear. And if they don't want to give you the advice, they suck. So, <laughs> I think um, initially when I was like first starting as an artist, I was really I was like nervous to like ask people about stuff. But then I don't know. It just got to the point where I I started doing it. You know, just reaching out to people. That now it's just like there's no fear. You know, and it's just I think that just comes from experience. You know, it's just like shoot your shot. You know, I'm like what's the worst thing that can happen? It's like they'll say no or they won't hit, hit you up. Like. Just go for it, you know? Yeah, that's the exact same 
It's thought process. Just go for it. I think fear does play a large part just because of also what it is that we're doing and the fact that nothing is sure. Like we don't know if we'll make it or if our art will like hit people or whatever, you know, but um, if it, when it comes down to asking questions and reaching out to people, just always go for it. If they say no or if they don't get back to you, they were busy. Maybe they just didn't want to get back to you and who cares? Just ask the next person. There's not, you can't lose anything by sending them an email other than that like five minutes that that took. I think it's like as easy as like sending an Instagram DM. You know, like I feel like we've yeah. gotten like mm -hmm. so much good info from just like DMing someone and like asking a question. And like the DMs we get on our on like our Will Studios page, like sometimes like the way you can tell the way they're asking their question that they're like nervous to ask, but it's yeah. like nothing. You know, it's like not a deal. You know, so mm -hmm. it's it's funny too. Uh, one of the patterns I kind of noticed in things I was reading for the last two weeks was that there's a lot of people who will say. I got on because I was so persistent. Like I just kept emailing this person over and over. I kept calling or I showed up. Like I think that's one of the things too is like they, you might get frozen out for, you know, your first 20 emails to that person, you know. You might not get that meeting right away, but, you know, a persistence is a factor too, no? I, yeah. was, I, would, I would caution against emailing one individual 20 times. <laughs> But you know, I thought when well, I said 20, I'm like, why did I say such a high number? <laughs> but that, I, that might be like illegal. But if you're looking for a specific thing, I would say email 20 different people once. Yeah, and sometimes they don't get back to you just honestly because they're busy. So if you want to follow up with them, you can follow up, but don't do it like the next day. Give them time and just, you know, follow back up. And if they don't get back to you, then just let it go. Well, and the attitude thing too, right? It's not like, yo, I didn't. I sent you an email, you didn't reply. So the next email is going <laughs> to be escalating. No. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, we want to open up the um, conversation. Lots of people in the room who make amazing things, who um, deal with these same questions around value pricing, all that. Do we have any questions? Okay, we got one here, and then we'll go. Um, do you want a mic? Hi. Are you good? I think I'm good. All right. Last year, um, I had the opportunity to like DJ outside of the country and DJ for different people and curate my own events. So my question to you guys is, when do you know it's the right time to raise your price? Mm, good question. That's a, that is a really good question. I feel like it is. Um, you should just try. Honestly, it's like it's. I don't think there's like a specific time, but. I feel like eventually your reputation gets to a level where you're like, you're starting to get offers that are higher, right? And once that starts happening, then you're like, okay, well, my base has got to go up. And also I think when you start feeling like you're not really gaining anything more from what you're doing. So for the first couple of times you're doing it, you're probably like, okay, cool. Like I'm getting my name out there. I'm getting the experience. I'm like really thankful for this. And then maybe the third time through, you're like, okay, I've now done this twice. Like, I know what I'm doing. I deserve to be paid more. And just ask for it. And then people will know, like, oh, she's this person that is asking for more money. She's $3,000, whatever it is. And then they'll just know to go to you for that. I think one of the things, too, I've, I've seen a lot, I don't know what you all think of this, is, is um, when you get to that point where it just doesn't feel worth the time to do it for that rate. You know what I mean? Where you start to get to that point. And you would rather, like truly in your gut, like I'd rather just not do it if that's going to be what I'm paid for, to do it, you know? Oh, actually, and this just reminded me of this. Um, there's actually a website. I can't, I can't remember what it's called right now, but I'm sure if you'd like search like, 
oh, how much should I get paid for like an article or something? It'll come up. But there's a resource. It's just this like blog that uh, is user generated and people just post to it and they just post how much, you know, every publication pays, you know, for an article. You know, I think there's something like that for several different industries. So like just search. And I also feel like DJing is like a good one to like just shoot a DM to someone. Like, you know, like, yeah. That's like, a, that's like a, I feel like that's a good one. You can just like hit someone up and like kind of just see how, what they're charging. Mm -hmm. If you feel like you're ready to raise your price, you probably are though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My price just went up. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, promoters. Um, we have a question over here. So, so everyone in the back in here, uh, the benefits and disadvantages to having management or representation. In terms of um, the benefits, I think it's good to have somebody who can handle the day to day, like emails, understanding how to price things out, the back and forth. Because a lot of, I guess what you were saying too, is finding the time in the day to be creative. If you have to answer like a million emails a day, you don't really have that much time for yourself. So if you have a manager who can handle all that and just tell you like, hey, we just got this gig. Are you cool with it? Cool. This is when it is. And that's it. Like that's the benefit of it. You know, the cost is like, you know, managers might take like 10% of whatever it is you're getting for that gig. Um, so you have to see whether it's worth it for you. But I think once you get a certain level of busy, it's totally worth it to have somebody helping you out. Um, but only if you find a manager who can really vibe with because there's also managers who can really disadvantage you because they don't really know what they're doing. I was gonna, I was gonna ask Definitely. you that, like yeah. how, mu how much a manager um, being in line with your brand, like they want to book you, they talk to that person, they're like, mm, I don't really like feel that person. I mean, I've, I've experienced that where I know artists uh, and I like them a lot, but their management is totally whack. And it's, I've seen it be very detrimental to them in their career, you know? Yeah, so I would say like, I mean, I just happen to be the kind of person who is very organized and I'm able to like, you know, handle all the administrative stuff myself. Um, I would say definitely do it until you get to the point where you're way too busy and you just need the help. Because like one of the major advantages of having management is you have somebody really who can represent you. And it's like sometimes when you're emailing different people from like, you know, like a festival or another thing, it's just like way better to, it, that it's not you doing the email, you know, because there's like a stigma against, you know, artists sending an email, you know? Yeah. And then they also get to get annoyed at your manager and not you. If your manager's like, no, it's actually $5,000, not two. Right. You know, then they hate your manager, not you. And it's fine. Yeah. You show up and the green room is beautiful. Yeah. Um, we got two questions in the back. I think a lot of it is literally just numbers based before like Eric was saying brand value and like the brands we want to sit beside. But a lot of it is just, you know, how much does fabric cost? How much does production cost? And then. Yeah. Details, notions, everything that goes into each piece, um, it adds up and then you have to have a margin for yourself. Um, so, I mean, you, you have to make money so you can't just make a shirt and then sell it for the same price you made it for. You know what I mean? So. And then it becomes like a whole different ballgame when you have like stockists and retailers and stuff because then your margins are cut in half. So 
it's just kind of knowing like where you're gonna sell first and and then you know yeah. being very diligent on what you're spending your money on and keeping track of everything and being very organized if people are buying it or not <laughs> Well, no, but you guys, I, you guys said something else too, like in terms of, so you can, you can break it down in the very technical element of like, this is what the materials cost and this yeah. is where it's going to be placed. So this is the cut someone else is taking and this is the margin I need to take. But then there's another element to it that like a sweater that's $80 or a sweater that's $200 or a sweater that's $600, there's a market for each of those things. Right. No, I think it's, I think like one of the things we struggled with pricing our stuff early on is like I always heard like when we were first starting out that like your friends are supposed to be the first ones that support you. But like, I think we understand that like our brand and our market is not for our friends. Like, and you have to like, it's just reality. Like some of my friends can't afford to buy my $400 pants, but it's not for them, you know? Like, and I just have to like be mindful of that and know what brands I want to sit beside in a store. Right, right. Was that a tough conversation? With your friends, <laughs> oh, you know, like, yeah. these pants aren't for you. Sorry, <laughs> I think they know. <laughs> unsaid, it was unsaid. They're still friends, so. Um, any other questions? Yeah. yeah, okay, we got one back here. I guess in the realm of being multifaceted. Um, for example, I'm a writer, director, actor, um, and I often find myself in positions where it's super beneficial to collaborate. And I think you mentioned something about how you're kind of on a collaboration wave, and I'm, I'm totally on that because I feel like when you're doing multiple things, you got to work with different people to get different markets and then et cetera, um, et cetera. But my, my question is basically like, how do you guarantee uh, a mutual benefit, beneficial relationship, or sorry, return when you're collaborating? So, I mean, like, do you kind of go all out on trust saying, I know this guy's going to deliver. I know when, when the time comes, I can maybe ask you for certain outcomes. Or is there, like, do you guys maybe think about, like, a process where it's, like, a creative contract that you maybe agree with them and say, hey, like, when this happens, I'm going to need you to market this. I'm going to need you to post this maybe two times a week. Like, how do you go about, I guess, guaranteeing that this the, the benefit that you're hoping is, is beneficial or the, the relationship that you're hoping is beneficial is actually beneficial? Like, is there any tangible, like, I think the, the, the most important thing is to just create an organic relationship with the person that you're going to work with because I feel like the rest of the stuff will just like fall fall in after that you know if you catch a vibe with somebody you know like they'll they'll make the posts you know it'll just it'll just happen naturally yeah you can't guarantee it there's no way to 100% know what's going to happen even with contracts it's different than having a contract with like a client who has to pay you, um, you like you said, like you have to build the relationship and, and know that person's work ethic. Like you shouldn't be going into a partnership with somebody if you don't know their work ethic, if you haven't seen, um, you know, a history of delivering. And there's really no other way. You just got to trust them at that point, but it has to be like an educated trust. Yeah, I think if you have the, if the end product that you guys collaborated on, you guys, um, turns out, I mean, I feel like most people, if you guys are at the same stage, you guys will continue to collaborate because you, they you, mutually you both like what you got with what you got. So, yeah. I think it's just respecting. I think it's at the end of the day, like it's like we're saying, like there's no science behind it. It's like a gut and a respecting. I like if I respect you, I'm working with you. Like I'm gonna try to put you on because I expect you to put me on as well. You know, and I think that's just something you gotta live with. 
You know, there's one thing in that too. I wonder what you all think about this is around communication. Like, for example, it's like I'm doing a feature on your album and then I'm just assuming that you know that because I'm doing a feature that you're going to do a feature for me down the road versus, you know, like, or I'm helping you on set for your web series. When I'm doing mine, I'm assuming that you know because I helped you that you're going to help me versus I, like... I would say don't assume. Yeah, yeah. don't assume. You know, it, just be transparent, like, immediately, you know, just be like, yo, it'd be sick if... You know, we're doing a feature on my album. If we could do it on your album and we could just do a trade or something or or be like, oh, yeah, let's like, you know, split the publishing on this. Like just like get away from being afraid of uh, communicating these things because it's way, 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 way worse if you're you're developed this relationship with somebody and then you're just like, oh, shit, we didn't talk about numbers at all the whole time. And now it's going to be mad awkward, you know? <laughs> And even if it's your friends, and almost especially if it's your friends, don't assume that they're going to come through for you. Um, just treat them like you would any other business partner. Just be like, this is what I expect out of this. So it's super clear off top. Thank you, guys. That was a great answer. Just a quick follow-up just to play devil's advocate. What if it's a time-sensitive thing? And what if there's someone that you want to reach out to that you know has the skills that could help you and give you that, that lacking side of where you want to collaborate on? They have special skills. But it's time-sensitive. You don't have the time to build that organic relationship, which I think one of you guys suggested to do. So what do you do in that situation where you, you have, a, you have like, the feeling that this is the right person to help me, but like, there's maybe not that time to really build that organic relationship? Well, then at that point, you just have to go with your gut, but still spell out what you expect, what, you know, what they should be doing, that kind of thing. If it's time-sensitive, you don't have the time to build the relationship, then you're just trusting your gut. But maybe ask around, just like see if you can get any sort of reference, um, just so you're not going in blind. Well, in your equation too, like I, you said, you can't get it good, fast, or, or good, so good, fast, and cheap, right? So it's just like also knowing that, like if you need it quick, you're not going to be able to get it cheap and good as well, right? So which, if you need it fast, what are you going to settle, you know? I've um, got a question here, here. Any other, there's some questions in the back too. Okay, so we'll go here, here, and then we got two over here. Um, all right, go ahead, man. Okay, so this one kind of... Just as loud as possible. I, uh. Can you hear me now? Hey. So this one is um, not more so prices or creativity. It's someone, something you guys mentioned is Um Might be a dumb question. So, okay, specifically rapper, designers, of course. Now, a lot of people in the city do that. Sometimes it's not the best music, but to them, they're at their creative peak, and that's what they do, right? So it's like, have you ever felt that maybe for a song or product that your creativity makes you in the wrong direction? And do you scratch that or overcome that? And what steps do you take to decide, like, am I, this is for the people? What's your, what's your line of when you drop something or not? Like, how do you know your creativity? That's a great question. That's a great question. That's not a dumb question. Uh, one thing for us is... Um, oh, no, just so everyone can hear in the back. So that question of like, you have this creative vision and you want to put it out there, but how do you know whether it's actually like going to help you or hurt you? Whether it's really on par with what where you want to be? Right. So uh, for us, we're kind of lucky because there's two of us. So we can... One of us can kind of keep our creativity to a market level. Yeah. Like keep our head small. But... Um, yeah, I, I think that uh, a lot of it is just seeing what people like and then kind of creating your own, like using your creativity to find your lane within it. Um, and that's kind of like how we, because I mean, you can make some crazy stuff in fashion, but it's like 
to us, it's also business. It's not just, it's like his fashion could be art, right? And, but we, to us, it's like, it's a mix, it's a balance. Yeah. And like Will Studios actually stands for what I like. So like, initially it was like what we like we're gonna put out, but yeah, that's, that's not real. You know? <laughs> it's not real. <laughs> like people gotta like it too, right? So yeah. Yeah, I feel like that's a constant struggle is like art versus commerce, right? And, and it's like, yeah, I could make the, I think I kind of did this earlier in my career where I would just make the craziest shit I possibly could. And it was just like very fun for myself, but maybe not as fun for the audience listening to it. Um, and so, yeah, it's all about having that balance. And I feel like um, one thing I try to do is I try to make music that at least can like stand up to a lot of the music I listen to. You know, that's an important thing. It's like, you know, I, I feel like music is meant for an audience and it's meant for other people. And I, I, I make music now with the audience in mind. And I think as long as like I'm, everything I make personally is always going to have like a creative bend to it. And it's, it's, it's always going to have like my my footprint in it. But um, as long as I can like kind of like temper that creativity and, and be like, oh, yeah, so somebody wants to play this in their car, too. Like, it's just all about having that balance in your mind, basically. And actually, you know, like Eric said, like, I think having a team, having a team that's around you that has your best interests in mind and can say no, like, that's a huge thing. Like, Eric and I are able to say no to each other. Like, when someone feels strongly about something, like, if he really wants to put out this sweater and I do not think of it, I could tell him no and I can have a reason and I give him my reason why I say no. And we have that respect with each other that, okay, like, it's not personal, you know? So, like kind of building a team around you that is able to tell you like, yeah, it's time or like you still need to, you need to hold off on this or whatever, have, whatever it is, you know, I think that's very important. Yeah. It's good to have like other people like that to work with where you have a mirror, you know? So like my label, they'll be like, oh yeah, that song's totally weird. <laughs> like we don't want to put it out, but this other one's really dope. I don't know. You know, it's, it's an interesting thing where like I look at that as in, as a having someone that's kind of like that producer that you can bounce things off of, somebody who has a different worldview, different perspective. Like I asked this trick question, it's a 90s hip hop reference, but it's kind of a trick question. Like, what's your favorite CL song without Pete Rock? Anybody? <laughs> you know, like um, it, his best music was made with Pete Rock. He did stuff solo, but it wasn't memorable, you know, in that, on that same level. And I think like, it's a really powerful thing when you can have that kind of synergy that you two talk about having or that you have with your label or that you have with your team um, where it's, you're getting that real perspective and it's not just you in your own kind of narrow, like creative lane where it's like, you just think, yes, this is it versus getting that other perspective, right? Um, so we had a question here, and then these two here. Um, everyone. Um, so my question is, so a lot of times creatives forget that they're a business as well. And, you know, creatives usually, they charge their price, but it's just their, their price they get by. And I want to talk about, like, profit margin. How does, how does an artist have a profit margin to not only take care of their day-to-day, -day, but also build their business as well. Like, what is a profit margin that is reasonable for them to continue to build, but also take care of their day-to-day? -day? Well, just so everyone can hear in the back, um, just as an artist, a lot of times forgetting the business side of things and how do you ensure that you have a profit margin in your work so that you can thrive? Yeah, it just depends whether the artist is working by themselves, are they working with a team, 
what is the overhead they're trying to cover. Um, if you're looking at like a commercial company, for example, their margins could be like 30, 40% because they have to pay, you know, rent on a massive building. Um, music videos, like you try to make like a 20% margin. Um, you, that's actually a really good question because I feel like if people are working without a production company, they don't charge a margin on top of what they're doing. Um, but the best I can tell you is like a production company would probably charge like 20%. But for you, like, I think the best way to calculate it is to see like, what are the, what are the costs that you're having to cover every month? And what do you need out of that job to just cover those costs and not just pay yourself a salary? So it would be a case by case kind of thing. Sorry. <laughs> no, I, I, just, I just asked that question because I feel like a lot of artists, they, it, it kind of looks like they stay stagnant mm. and there's no like growth. It's like, it's, it's a lot of, okay, I get this money and I use it for my personal, but I'm back at, at zero. You know? Yeah, that's a really good point. I Personally, as an artist, I keep two documents, one with my expenses for the year, one for my income for the year. And I actually always, you know, I add up every time there's one of the other. And, um, you know, I always make sure the income is higher than the expenses. <laughs> Uh, for us, it, I, I remember seeing a post. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds obvious, but I mean, yeah, try yeah. but try doing that for 365 days. All of a sudden, it yeah. becomes uh -huh. so much harder. Uh, I remember seeing a post on Instagram, like when it first came out, and it said quality then quantity. So for us, you know, it's kind of like if we keep releasing a quality product and we're not making that much margin, eventually, hopefully, it's that you get the quantity that you need, and then you can kind of. Maintaining that quality. Yeah, like you, you create a quality and then people, more people gravitate, more people want it, and then your margin grows. Um, then the quantity is there to, to create that margin. And it, yeah, it's also a little different in clothing because the more, the more you manufacturing you do, like the bigger the number is, like the more your margin is. So like, I don't know, like we price ourselves so that we make enough right now to get by. Uh, and if we keep the same pricing and our stock is shoot up or something, we have a whole bunch of orders well, then our margin increases. So it's a little different in clothing, but yeah, we yeah. price are enough, enough to like kind of get by and hope that this product and this brand will like take off so that we can yeah. get bigger. For, for film or production specifically, you can be charging for expenses right into the budget. So whether it's like your phone bill, you know, an office rental, which could even be your house, and then figure out how many days you're going to be working on and then divide your rent by those that many days. Like it can be that specific and you can charge it right into the job. Yeah, I think that that thoroughness is so important when you really think about it. I think one of the things we were talking about earlier, when you talk about research and preparation, right, is like, it's not just about the, the performance or that one service you're delivering, but it's like all the infrastructure and that's infrastructure even in your own life that supports that, you know, otherwise you're working and you're basically paying more to work than you are to, to, to do the work. Um, got a question here and then back there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, just hearing that, I, I feel like I want you to start making beats. 
because that was something I did for, for myself initially. Like I did all the production for my first three albums and it was because I was really unhappy with all the beats I was getting. Like I was like, oh, this doesn't sound like me. This doesn't sound like me. And I just kind of like just, you know, got free loops, hacked and just uh, taught myself how to make beats. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's one way to do it. But the other thing is like, I guess, communicating more with the people that you work with and, and being really clear about, you know, if, if they're not really bringing as many ideas to, to the table, maybe you should be working with different producers too, you know? I, I, I've never, in terms of like, as an, worked as an artist with a producer, but in terms of being a step removed from that, one of the things is that initial conversation, like having a conversation where you're saying, if you have a beat that I want to use, then I'll pay you this much money. You know what I mean? And that's where then you, when you go in the studio and you're working with them on that process. So I think it's maybe like not jumping to that initial agreement just to work with that producer to say it's a thousand dollars, but like, you know, and maybe you spend a whole bunch of time with them and find that they don't have anything you want and you don't, you know, then you're not locked in that situation. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if you guys do this, but adding in clauses to your agreements or to even just exchanges, like if this isn't going to be dealt with in the way, in a manner that like is up to my heart and I'm not getting backed by you, like I'm paying you or I'm paying you with my time. If you're not giving that to me, what's the clause of like, I'm not happy with this. I'm not going to give you all the money up front, those kinds of things, but like, what else can like? What else have you guys done? Like, I always put it in like, like money up front, money in the middle, money at the end. Yeah, never pay it all before you get the end. Yeah. Right, right. I, I, one thing I would recommend with that is to maybe work with a, a producer who's maybe like at the same stage as you. Um, where you guys can both just be creative and just hang out and make some music. And it's not like, yo, like, give me a thousand bucks right now. It's like more of just like a, a creative relationship. And then like the other stuff will happen later, you know? That's a good point. Oh, hey guys. Um, just wondering, I had two questions. Uh, my first question was, because um, I hear a lot of talk about money and, and commerce and things like that. I understand why that's important. But um, do you find a big payout to be the, the biggest reward or do you find making something that you really, really are proud of? Like, if you can think of a time where, let's say, when you first sold that $400 t-shirt, right, or like even, let's say, first massive, massive budget, you know, or like your, your first big check or payout as on, on, on a DJ set or what have you. Like, did you find that moment to be more rewarding than um, actually killing it that night or like, making that product that would make somebody feel like I want to give you that money or I believe in your skills enough to be like I'm willing to offer you that, that I don't think it's more rewarding I think that um the idea of bringing commerce into it is to make sure that you can like sustain yourself so that you can keep doing things that you really want to do uh, I mean to this day we would still do or I would still do projects that are not going to make me money because I think they're worth it in the long run because we did go into this to create and at the end of the day, we just want to be able to create. And if we can, at the same time, make money while creating, then that's the more like sustainable thing in the long run. Because I want to make sure that I can always create, you know? I feel like um, money has always been secondary to me. You know, it's a, I, I've always 
you know, just try to like lead that artistic life. And I feel like that's also what's made me successful is the fact that I, I, I really don't think about the money side of things very much. Like I really try and focus on just making the best thing that I could possibly make. And then the other stuff just falls in after I find. But how did, how did you make it through those times where you're dedicated to our artistic life and it's not paying yet? I mean, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, really it was, you know, I do all these other things too. That's diversifying like that has helped me out a lot. But, um, I think, you know, I just, I just kept going. <laughs> I just kept making stuff until something hit basically. And I just didn't eat a lot. <laughs> I think the bet, I think like when you can find that, the like both those two together, like when it's like one of my favorite things that we've designed and then you get the check off it, it's like, Okay, like, you know, the worst is, like, one of the, like, it doesn't actually feel good, too good when you design something and you're not, and it happens when you're not completely happy with it, and then you get the check, it's like, you know, like. <laughs> yeah, I wish it was something better. Yeah, I wish. Like, I wish I, they liked this one. Yeah, um, so I, I think it's when those two meet that it's, like, the best possible feeling. I read something really great recently. It was an interview with Quincy Jones, and one thing he says is, uh, God leaves the room when you start talking about money in the studio, you know? And I feel like that is so true. That's so true. Can I ask my second question? Yeah, I hope God didn't leave the room here because we're talking about money. <laughs> <laughs> um, are there ever any days uh, that you wake up feeling uh, totally confused about what it is you do? Because you're all on the, on the panel very uh, insightful. But as creatives, that insecurity, does that ever creep into your mind? And when you're losing that motivation, what is it you do to kind of get back on track? I just want everyone just to hear that question of, do you ever wake up confused? Do you ever wake up like with those insecurities and or lose track of, of your like creative vision? Um, amazing question, yeah. I think that, yeah, I was just gonna say, I think that happens every day. How many people have that feeling like today? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I think that happens every day. And for me, the coping mechanism is like, what is the long-term vision? And am I making my way towards that long-term vision? And I think it's important not to align that vision with something overly specific and to know what your vision of success is. So for me, it's like, if I can tell this type of story and keep telling it, then that's what's going to make me happy. And right now in this moment, am I making sure that I'm moving towards that? And then there's days where I'm like, wait, I'm not. So then I have to check myself and change my path so that I'm not upset or like overly confused all the time, you know? Yeah, I, I feel like one of the major things for me is just like the power of positive thinking. Like I just, for I'm just think very positively all the time. I think I try and I, I really like amp myself up to be confident because I know in all the things I, I do, there's a lot of precarity in like whether or not something's gonna be successful. So I think the fact that I think very positively is very important, and especially as an artist trying to be a musician. Um, I read an article the other day in the New York Times, it was just all about how to be creative or whatever, and the number one thing they said was um, be audacious. That was something they said. And it's like, you know, I guess bring out your like inner Kanye all the time to be like, I am the best. You know, I am really good at this. You know, and it's like, I feel like that has driven so many great artists. 
in the past. Like I feel like it is inherently audacious to be like, I'm an artist, right? It's like I, I have something creative to give to the world and people are gonna listen to it. You know, it's kind of inherently audacious. So I feel like leaning into that has always helped me in my career. Yeah, I think for for us also, uh, you know, we can see like a, a ta- like a an object, and I can see someone who's successful and what the, what they made, and I can I can compare myself and I say, okay, like I'm not I'm not completely wrong. Like I, I'm getting somewhere, and I think one of the things that helps us to keep going is that like we've slowly been get, uh, stepping, like we've been stacking little little yeah, money. we've been getting like little victories here and there. We're, we're not there, but you know, as long as we keep we feel like we're we're getting there. Then that's kind of like how we keep going. If yeah, and yeah. Then, and I think like on a motivation tip, like I think for me it's like honestly it's staying organized. I think like if I'm organized for my next three days and have like a plan for my next three days, like when I wake up, I this is what I have to do, and I have it written out. Like I am like so I'm addicted to my schedule. If I lose my computer, like I am gone. Like I don't know what to do, you know. So I think just like keeping to my schedule allows me to like stay on it. Like I know I have to hit these ten things today. I have to kill them. So it's like that allows me to like wake up and just get to it every day. So there, there's such a practical tool on that, which is, um, and we're gonna we have two more questions and we'll wrap. But a really practical tool is called the Ivy Lee method, which is whatever time of day you finish your workday, before you finish, you take ten minutes and you have three minimum, maximum six things that you want to that you want to accomplish the next day. And it's like it's not like having 40 things in mind or like going in and then figuring out your day that morning. It's like before I wrap today, the last 10 minutes of what I'm doing is like, what are the three things for tomorrow? Um, and, you know, so that like when I heard that, it's so simple. And that's why it's really easy to sustain and, and um, apply. Um, so we have two questions before we wrap. So one here and one here. You just have to make them, you can't let them disregard you, basically. Um, You have to keep doing your thing. Some men and women will try and stand in your way. Um, And unfortunately, that's the reality of just like what we have to face. Um, If you just stay true to what you're doing and if you just keep doing your thing and like keep putting your voice out there and understanding that what you have to say does matter, um, they'll hear you. And you can't let the people that do try and disregard you and like push you to the side actually make you feel like you don't have a voice or you shouldn't have a voice because they're wrong. Um, So you just can't let it happen, basically. Just like keep doing your thing, especially right now. There's a lot of room in the in the industry for women, um, as there should be. We're 50 percent of the population. It makes sense. Um, So just keep doing your thing. Don't listen to them and you'll be fine. Um, Last question here. And just we will have you know, opportunity if you do want to talk to some of the um, panelists individually after. I have two questions. Okay. First one being, Kaliba, as a woman, do you make less money in the industry because you're a woman? Yes. Second question. So the question was, do you make less money as a woman in the industry? The answer was. Next one is, as a creative, do you find yourself having, like, we understand money is a motive, but how much time do you invest investing in yourself financially? And, and just so everyone hears in the back, how much money's, yeah, if money is the motive, but how much time or how much do you invest 
financially as well in yourself and developing yourself? I don't think there's like a percentage or like a dollar amount. Um, I just think that you constantly need to feel like you're learning and growing. So whatever it takes to make sure that you are constantly growing, investing in yourself, also making sure that you're not burning out so that you're spending enough time to literally just be with yourself and to remind yourself of why you're doing this, what your vision is. Um, I think the correct answer, I guess, would be like once you're feeling good and like once you feel like you know yourself and that you're in the right path, then you're spending enough time. Once you start feeling like you're burning out or you're kind of not sure like what you're doing, that like why you're doing certain things, then you need to take the time to just invest back into yourself. And sometimes that's financial and sometimes it's literally just like turning off your phone and getting away for like two hours. Yeah, I definitely find that I invest a lot of the money that I make back into what I'm working on and, and, in, and back into the projects. And I feel like that's just an inherent part of it, definitely being an artist. And I feel like when you kind of stop doing that, I feel like you can stop progressing as an artist too. Whether that's like, you know, buying some new gear that you just want to like learn something new with or, you know, you know, in, investing in yourself, say it's like, you know, like paying for your merch or like all these things. Like, I think it's just something that constantly happens and I feel like it, it gets to a bigger and bigger and bigger scale um, the better you're doing as an artist. And I think it's just like definitely part of it. So I, I'd say a lot of it is, you know, you got to bet on yourself, you know? I just want to go back to your question about women getting paid less. Um, I think it's important to know that one of the reasons why that also happens is that women are easier to kind of say no to because we let that happen. Um, I don't know why this is like people do per perceive women as being, it being okay to pay them less. But at the end of the day, like if you know your worth and you ask for it and you keep asking for it, they'll hear you and they'll pay you that much. So just don't assume that you should be being paid less. Like that's not a real thing. It's just the standard right now. But if you just ask, you know, they'll, they'll hear you. And if, if your work is worth it, they'll pay you. Yeah, those are, those are amazing points. Um, really want to thank everybody for us on the panel. If we could just run up applause. Thank you. It's amazing having all everything you shared and um, to everyone who came out here in the audience like that means so so much this this conversation has so much meaning and so much power because of everybody here that's in the room and like the wealth of knowledge and it is just present and you being present so that, that in all sincerity um, means so much I think what what I want to say to kind of close this conversation is in some senses, it's a huge, huge topic. There's no way we're going to touch everything. Um, but one consistent thing as I talked to each of the panelists beforehand was this idea, this constant return to this idea of vision. Like if you're going to do some work for free or for a low rate, you need to have a vision to how that is going to get you to this, to this, to this. Like if you're going to, you know, wake up in the morning and feel confused and doubtful about your art, it's again, vision. If you're going to say, this is what I'm worth. It's like, it's, it really is doing that work and it doesn't come overnight. Right. But it's like a constant thing of that. I kept hearing from them of that constant work of seeing where are you trying to go and, and putting, don't assume that like, one step's just going to lead there. Like you got to kind of know where you want to go. Um, so yeah, that that's a valuable takeaway um, from all, all of you. And just three events or talks coming up. So this Saturday right here, 
there is going to be a topic. It's called shooting commercially in your style. So it's just about that idea that a lot of times as a photographer, you feel like I can do my own style, my own art, or I can shoot commercially. But Neil Watson is a photographer based in Montreal and, and Miami who will be here for um, on Saturday at 1 p.m. Um, and if you want to attend, you know, just let me know or just show up, please. Um, if that's your interest, Stay Reading is a gathering of creatives that it's just, you don't have, it's a book club where you don't have to have read a book. You don't have to finish what you're reading to share from it. Um, you don't have to be reading the same thing. It's just as creatives, what are you reading? Magazines, graphic novels, whatever um, books, something old, something new, bring that to the table and, and share what you're reading and also hear what other creatives are reading. And then the next um, convene is gonna be June 13th. And uh, we'll share more about that in coming days. So thank you all for being here. Have a good night. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can find out more about Convene at watervision.com or on Instagram. That's W-A-T-R Vision. Convene is founded and produced by myself, Chris Penrose, through Watervision Creative. Production, editing, and sound design of this episode is all done by Martin Agnon. We are going to keep these conversations going, so we will connect again on the next episode.